Select your program. Guest. Program initiated. Approach the threshold. Engage rationality. Open your mind. Godspeed. Warping down to your listening devices through space, this is Flagship Freedom, the podcast that places you on the front line in the war of ideas. My name is Michael, and welcome back to the flagship. I've got a topic for you that's going to ruffle some feathers, especially for those of you who are not really on the libertarian, voluntarist, anarchist sort of bent, but that's okay, we love you anyways. This topic is education and choice in education. That's right, school choice. Now, there's a lot of topics that are involved in this overarching subject. And with the recent nomination of a one Miss Betsy DeVos out of my fair home state of Michigan, there's been a lot of renewed discussion on the topic of school choice. Now, Ms. DeVos is an advocate of charter schools, and the schools that she likes to push for and advocate for are schools that have a religious foundation. Not surprisingly, many of the private schools that exist are schools, at least in America here, are schools that are not secular those that have a religious backbone or a religious foundation. So that might be a little different than maybe the the boarding schools that exist in the UK that are a little bit more secular. America has always had their option, usually, I should say, their options being a public school, which clearly is secular, or a private school, which usually is of the Catholic variety. Although there are more private schools that are popping up that are secular. So this episode is custom fit for those people who are caught saying constantly, X is good. Government should provide X. If government does not provide X, then we will not have X. There are a lot of problems with this. Is X really good? Can the government provide it? Should the government provide it? Are there better alternatives? So today's topic addresses one of those. If a government, a centralized planner, does not provide it, Will it be provided? This is at the core of the free market. What will the observations be when we travel throughout the world on a magic carpet ride with the one and only indispensable Professor James Tooley to discover the incredible and spontaneous effects when people exercise their economic choice? Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we have Professor James Tooley, a professor of education at Newcastle University and the director of E.G. West Center. He has many publications under his name and many honors recognizing his contributions to the study of education throughout the world. Professor Tooley, it's my pleasure to have you on Flagship Freedom. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, we are very happy. I'm very happy. Usually I have my co-host here. That's why I say we. I'm speaking for all of us. (laughs) Well, first, I need a disclaimer right here that listeners may hear me use superlatives a little bit more than usual during this conversation because I have been an admirer of you, Professor, for about five years now since I've left university. In fact, way back when, when I was still in school, I was introduced to you in a class by a professor. He may be your antithesis. He was at his his wit's end trying to uh, object to central 
points within your research. And I think that was all the stamp of approval I needed to read your book and then reread it over and over again. So, uh, and, and the book that I do refer to is The Beautiful Tree, which we will talk about shortly. But almost 10 years later, uh, 2009, I believe, you published publish your book. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And and your book has been widely disseminated, discussed, and synthesized into many other pieces of research and argumentation. I have to say that still here in America, a country that has a profundity of information and access to it, the ideological bent here is so strong that the assumption still remains heavily in the camp of government-run schools uh, as mm-hmm. a preferred and the economically vital option sometimes, uh, an option that is even sometimes a bad word in, in quarter with opponents that are against privatization. So I certainly believe that that those who have it in their heads that the market could provide alternatives were very much willing to embrace such a thesis as you developed within your, your research and your book. But the sheer discovery of the phenomenon must have been like manna from from heaven. So I, I, I mean, it must have it was shocking for you. I know you described it in the book and and through other pieces uh, that have been released in journals. So for some people that have it have missed your book, and I will be linking to your book. They definitely should be picking it up. And the research within, I'd like to ask you, Professor, to give us a rundown of generally some of the broader points uh, that you discovered in your research and years leading up to the publication of the book, and then also. Also, what kind of research you added between then and now? Okay, so, so you mentioned that word privatization, didn't you? And I did. Uh, it it's, it's causes a lot of problems with people. But what I've discovered, and it, it was an extraordinary discovery um, for me, was that the people themselves in some of the poorest parts of the world are privatizing themselves. I call it grassroots privatization, mm-hmm. um, uh, privatizing their educational opportunities. Grassroots privatization, privatization by the people, for the people. That's my own version of the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> so I, I first stumbled on this. I, I Look, everyone knows private education. Private education is for the elite, for the, the wealthy. Isn't it? That's, that's what everyone knew. And I was no exception. And I, I was doing consultancy research about private education in India. And uh, I had a, a day off and I wanted to go and see what was happening in some of the poorest slums. I was looking at some of the rich organizations providing education in India. I wanted to see what's happening in the slums. And I wandered into those slums in Hyderabad and stumbled across something which, I mean, you used with that word shocking, or not shocking in a bad way, was just extraordinary in a good way. I found a low low cost private school in those days charging just one or two dollars per pupil per month. And then I found another and another. And soon I realized that I, I was in touch with this federation of 500 of these low cost private schools. And uh, it was an extraordinary revelation to me. I spoke to poor parents. You know, why, why are you sending your children to these uh, private schools when the government schools are free, the public schools are free? Um, you get free books, free meal at lunchtime. And uh, parents said, because our children are abandoned in the government schools. I went to see one of these government schools. I went with the district education officer. They knew we were coming Beautiful building, lovely building. Um, went in there, and I'd never forget this sight. 130 kids sitting on the floor amongst the mosquitoes, 
crowded, eager, young, beautiful young children wanting to learn, eager to learn, eager to greet the stranger. No teachers. I mean, there were two teachers in a school where there should be seven. And and that was just every day. The, the teachers had a rotor between themselves when when they could be bothered to turn up. So uh, that word of a, that, that that word abandoned in the public schools. That seeing it for myself, realizing there was something strange going on, I managed to get a grant from the John Templeton Foundation to explore this phenomenon across the world. Actually, well, in in West Africa, in Ghana, in Nigeria, in East Africa, Kenya, different parts of India, even rural China. And uh, the headline findings, I can just tell you the, the headline findings, really, in urban areas, the vast majority of poor kids are going to private schools, these low-cost private schools. And I think 65, 70, 75 percent of kids in these schools. In rural areas, it might be 30 percent. Uh, we tested in the first round of research, we tested 26,000 children in mathematics, English, and one other subject. And these low-cost private school children are outperforming the government children at, uh, well, you know, controlling for the relevant socioeconomic background variables and uh, any selectivity bias. So, and, and, and these schools are affordable. These schools are affordable to families on the poverty line. We've done a lot of research calculating exactly what families on the poverty line can afford and realizing that they can afford to send their children to these private schools. Indeed, the cost to a parent may not be much more to send to a private school than to send to a government school. Because in government schools, you've still got to find costs such as uniform, books, shoes, transport, um, and so on. Mm. So an incredible, an incredible sort of success story coming out of Africa, coming out of South Asia, Southeast Asia, and, and I find it now in Central America, to a lesser extent, uh, and, and Latin America. Um, extraordinary success story. I've been celebrating this ever since. The beautiful tree, I think, is just a celebration of this extraordinary phenomenon which is going on around the world. Absolutely. And I look forward to talking a little bit about your work in Central America uh, a little later in the conversation. But first, mm -hmm. I, I do have a few questions. And I know that the listeners who are unfamiliar with your work will also have a couple of basic questions after hearing about this remarkable discovery. So why is there a difference between the urban and rural areas in terms of parents seeking out either private schools or them just popping up sporadically? Oh, I, I think it's just a question of... Um, density of demand um you you're you're not gonna well, sorry two things one density of demand and secondly the, the the availability of of cash for, for for private schools typically rural areas um will be poorer than the urban areas even the urban slums um but it, it's more to do with density of population and and e and ease of finding teachers and, and, and so on. If I want to open a private school, I can quite easily, I've done this several times now myself, I can quite easily see in these urban areas, urban slums, urban low-income areas, I can see the density of demand, I can see how many children I can get in and I can plan. And I can also see how I can get teachers either from that community or from neighboring communities to come and teach. Looking at a village in a rural area, first of all, there'll be fewer kids and then I think, well, where can I get the teachers from? Can I they'll have to bring them in from outside? And it all gets a bit more complicated. So it's that, that's a very simple reason, really. A very, very simple set of reasons. 
And you brought up teachers. Now, I'm sure, as we'll also talk about a little bit uh, later when we discuss what you may be doing in first world countries, but there's always a concern about the quality of teachers, both the quality of teachers and the, and the quality of the building and the curriculum. But there has been uh, a number of criticisms from some opponents of privatization and these low cost and low fee options uh, that the quality of the teachers is going to be diminished, that they are underqualified as often the, the the word, but of course, then the response is, what kind of qualifications and who is making the qualifications? So I want I want to know what what is the what are the similarities between a lot of these teachers? Are they are they also are they teaching themselves merely the day before using the internet? Are they individuals that have a little bit of experience or or absolutely none and they realize that there's a there's a niche in the market that needs to be uh, a demand that needs to be met? Yeah. Okay. So so the, this is this is common across all all the places I've looked. Common across all my studies. Okay. Um, the teachers in the low cost private schools are the critics are correct they're less qualified okay they're less well paid they're less experienced than the teachers in the government schools fact 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 so um, if those were criticisms then you know the case rests against me however the problem is with with that is that the better qualified the better paid the more experienced teachers in the government schools first of all often don't turn up if they do turn up, they often don't teach. Um, you know, the data shows, not my research this time, but from other researchers, data shows teachers are only teaching 50% of the time they should be in mm. India. And that's probably a, an over-optimistic estimate because of the way it's estimated. Um, so, so, so the, in the government school, you've, you've got potentially better teachers, but they're not bothering to teach. They're not bothering to teach particularly well and so in the low-cost private schools although you've got it seems disadvantage disadvantages first of all at least the teachers are there they're dedicated to teaching they're accountable and th they deliver this is a very important point the research consistently now shows this the teachers deliver better results with the kids so yes they're un they're less qualified but they produce better results why do they do this Clearly, because there's accountability, they are um, they are young, typically young and fresh. Therefore, they've got energy, and they are willing and able to, you know, to plan lessons or to to commit to, to lessons beforehand. So, uh, you know, don't see this as a problem. Um, see it as actually as an advantage. I think some of the research we've done over the years has shown that the longer, the more experience you have as a teacher in school, the worse your results are going to be. And that's, that's one of the facts. Now, some of us have created these chains of schools. I've got, um, we'll talk about them later, as you say, but I've got them in various places around the world. There are other various chains of low-cost private schools emerging and typically, what we're trying to do is provide lesson plans for these teachers. So it's to say, okay, we've got unqualified or less qualified teachers. They're typically graduates. Uh, they're typically students themselves. Possibly they could even be high school graduates teaching elementary school. Um, so we've got these less qualified teachers. What are some of the things that a more qualified teacher can do? Well, they can plan lessons. They can make lesson plans. They can create resources they can think imaginative about resources so what do we do in our chains or federations we get great teachers 
coming in, making lesson plans, preparing resources, and then we give those to the less qualified teachers. We train them in their use. We monitor them in the use. We mentor them in their use. And so you see, we can take these less qualified teachers and make them you know, perform in much better ways than you, you could imagine given their qualifications. So they're already doing better than the government teachers. We can help them do better still through these targeted interventions. Very good. So we've talked a little bit about the the teachers and their qualifications and why they seem to, you know, the metrics that you're using to measure the student's success are better despite the fact that they are underqualified and lower paid. But I'd like to know a little bit about actual schools themselves. And of course, I imagine that there's not really a one-size-fits-all school and people may immediately have it when they're within their heads that you know this is just a, a a terrible dismal building some type of back alleyway building where the kids are maybe they're standing up and you know facing the professor with their books in their hands kids are sitting on the floors with rats crawling between their legs i mean is there a is there a similarity between many of these schools when you when you observe them and and also my my other question is what kinds of metrics do you use to measure them? Because obviously they aren't standardized. Their curriculums may not be standardized. So how do you test the students for their comparison to the government-run programs, which I imagine are much more standardized? Yeah. So, 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 so first of all, you talked about the buildings. Yes. And yeah. So, so, you know, if you go into some of the, particularly in Africa and some of the slums, buildings are pretty awful. Mm. Okay. Um, compared to what you're used to in, I forget where you are. You're in California, are you? I'm actually in Detroit. In Detroit, yeah. Compared to buildings in Detroit, or not by much, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd be surprised, I think. Yeah, I, I, mean, I haven't been to Detroit. I've been to um, just up the way, up the road there, where Michael Moore made his film. Was Flint? I've been Flint, to Flint. That's right. Yes. And yeah, so I've seen what poor buildings are like in America. Mm. Then, you know, these are hundreds of times worse. Okay, so yes. so buildings will be bad, but compared to children's homes, buildings are better. You know, you've always got to compare them to where children's are. Children are coming from. Children ah, coming yes. from conditions. These these places are typically better, and typically a new school will start in a very modest way, perhaps in a rented building, perhaps in a church or. A community hall, perhaps in, even in the person's home with just one or two classes. And then as they grow bigger, typically the the um, proprietor invests more in a building. So they might buy a piece of land and put up, a first of all, perhaps a wooden building, but then it will be block buildings with cement floors and proper tin roof and so on. Mm -hmm. And then slowly the buildings develop. So, so you will see a continuum. You'll certainly see some very, very poor buildings, and they get better as the schools typically get older and bigger. In, in India, the, the buildings will be better. The slums are not as poor, in my view, as Africa, and the buildings will be, yeah, typically nice block building, uh, you know, proper um, pukka buildings, as they call them in India, pukka buildings, you know, which with uh, which are decent enough, and um, again, better than where the children come from. So, so you know, you have to lower your, ex you know, you have to lower your expectations when you go and see some of these low cost private schools for the first time. But then you have also have to be realistic. They are not like international schools, but they are you know, they are serving the children and they're serving them better than the government ones. Um, 
how do we compare them? Um, so, so, I mean, the government schools, they're, they're, they typically aren't standardized testing in these government schools in these places. But so, so we, 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 we bring in standardized tests. So we, we find standardized tests that are used. Um, sometimes, for example, in Ghana, in Nigeria, USAID um, has created some standardized tests for use in schools there. We've been able to use those tests or adapt them slightly um, to use to compare what's going on in the public and private schools. If such tests aren't available, then we take other standardized tests that are used around the world, adapt them if necessary in conjunction with both public and private school teachers, and, and then compare them. So the comparisons are pretty, pretty rigorous and consistently show the private schools coming out better. Right. So you aren't using testing methods that are only unique to you. You're using testing methods that many other organizations may already use. So it's the best of what we have currently available when we're, whenever we're talking about a third world country and its education. Yeah, I, that's, that's, that's fair enough. That's fair to say. I, I, I remember you just as an, uh, just going back an earlier question, you, you did ask me what I've been doing since the beautiful tree. I don't know if that's of interest to you. It but, is. Yes. Yeah. But uh, so the one is creating these chains and federations we'll talk about in a moment. But in terms of research, one of the criticisms of the beautiful tree, I mean, there are so many criticisms. Your, your professor was, is not alone in academic. <laughs> I imagine that. Lambasting me for my work and getting very defensive. But one of the, one of the criticisms that I thought was, yeah, this is, I want to take this seriously was, um, I'm talking about the poor in Ghana, Nigeria, India, Kenya, but these are not the poorest countries. I mean, they're very poor, but they're not the poorest countries. What about the poorest countries? You know, can the private sector really serve the needs of the poor in the poorest countries? So I took that, I took that criticism seriously. And so again, I got funding from the John Templeton Foundation to do research in, I, I, I wanted it to go, well, so where, what, what, what are, where are, the poorest children in this world, really, and they're in conflict-affected states in Africa. So I did uh, research in South Sudan, um, uh, Liberia, Sierra Leone, briefly in northern Nigeria and Somalia, but to see what was going on in those countries. And, you know, I've just got a book coming out, actually, with the Institute of Economic Affairs in London. Um, it's coming out in hopefully in a month or so. It's oh, called... Wonderful. It's called Education, War and Peace. I rather like the title, um, but it's about it's summarizing this research in those conflict affected states in Africa. And, and the, the headline figure is the same, you know, that in the slums of Monrovia in Liberia, 71 or 72 percent of children are in private schools. I'm saying from Liberia, the slums of Monrovia, the capital of Liberia, 71 or 72 percent of children in these slums are using private schools. Only 8% are using public schools and the rest, 21%, are out of school. These are children aged 5 to 14. So again, this extraordinary revolution of low-cost private schools, yes, it does reach the poorest nations. And in fact, you can see as the peace um, treaties were signed in Liberia and Sierra Leone and then the one that was signed in South Sudan, unfortunately, was broken just as we were doing the research. But you could see, if you if you looked at a graph of time 
um, and the number of schools, you could see a great spike or well, a sort of a, a cumulative curve um, showing a great increase, almost an exponential increase in private schools once the peace treaty is signed. They're serving the they're serving the, the communities during the war, uh, more more private schools than government schools. The government schools, of course, are all closed. Private schools are there. And some really, really rough schools, you know, in tents, um, some in just really ramshackle buildings, but serving children while civil war is going on. And then once the peace treaty is signed, people open schools. And there's this huge number of private schools being opened. Now, in this recent research, we were much more careful I mean, I, I can criticize my earlier research, but we were very careful this time to focus on who the private schools were run by. I mean, we did it a bit before, but this time we were very clear. Were these a for-profit pr private proprietor school? Were they an NGO or a church or a mosque and so on? And it's, it's the majority were, uh, were, were proprietor schools typically. I think it's about 60 odd percent of those schools in the slums of Monrovia, for instance, are are private proprietor schools. And then there's a considerable number of church schools. However, a lot of the church schools are run by independent churches, you know, one pastor creating an independent church. And actually, they are much more like for-profit schools, really. The proprietor is not like a, an Anglican church or an Episcopalian or Methodist church that is bringing money into the school in fact the school is probably bringing money into the the little church so so anyway it's a very exciting very exciting set of findings going into these poor countries and seeing what was going on and i mean my heart breaks for south sudan because I, we i did the research in a sort of break between the civil war when it all seemed so hopeful and um it's all obviously all gone backwards now but uh, to see in these poor communities in, on the outskirts of Juba, for instance, um, the number of private schools being created by people who really wanted their country to grow and develop and you know, seeing their energy and their commitment and their, their vision was wonderful. And, you know, unfortunately, they've all been pushed back a bit now. These things are indeed very inspiring. Now, yeah. I know that you how hi you highlighted several of the similarities uh, within your research in various countries: India, Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, uh, and even in China. But I'd like to know a little bit about some of perhaps the significant divergences, or maybe some minority data points when you found within your study that are unique to some of these countries that you may not find, let's say, uh, you may not find in Asia as you would in Africa, or we. Can can now maybe introduce kind of work that you're doing in Central America as well, so we can bring all of these things into the mix and observe some of the differences between some of these reasons, not just culturally, but the way that their schools are are run. Yeah, I, I mean, I've emphasized the similarities because that's that's what does hit you with the research, the research, and if you go to these schools, you know, you you go into the poor areas of Lagos, Nigeria, it feels very similar in terms of the education that's being offered, you know, in the, right. the number of low-cost private schools. It's very, very similar to if you're in the poor areas of Hyderabad or Delhi in India. You know, it's quite extraordinary, that that similarity. Um, I mean, Ch China was an outlier, and, um, and I make that clear in the book, The Beautiful Tree. Ch China was an outlier. Um, the, the public schools, you know, whereas in India perhaps surprisingly how bad they are in India, but in India, Nigeria, you know, Kenya, Ghana, the, the public schools are pretty desperate 
places um, for the poor. Um, in China, they, they were better. You know, they were, you could see there was a bit of a Confucian work ethic amongst the teachers, and they're more likely to turn up and, and, and do stuff. But the private sector there, excuse me, the private sector there is coming in for two reasons, really. One, in the, in the urban areas. So if you go to parts of Beijing and Shanghai and Shenzhen and so on, um, you'll find private schools, low-cost private schools for what's the migrant workers or the, the, um, the, uh, the, what they call them the floating population, but the people who've come in from the rural areas, from, uh, from the villages in China, come into the cities to work. The way the Chinese system works, they're not actually proper citizens of urban China, if you could put it like that. You can put, they're citizens of rural China, they're not really citizens of urban China. And so therefore, the public schools won't accept them. And so low-cost private schools are set up for these people from China, but migrants who can't really access the private, uh, the public schools. And if they could, they'd be discriminated against because they're poor, they speak in funny accents, they, you know, and, 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 and so on. So there's a vast number of these low-cost private schools for migrant workers in urban China, first of all. And then in the rural areas, and this is what I covered in The Beautiful Tree, hmm. um, you, if you go into them, I went to Gansu, which is one of the poorest provinces of China in the northwest. Um, there, if you go into the mountains, there is a public school, and it's not a bad public school, but it's supposed to serve all of the villages around. And maybe some of the villages are two, three or four hours walk away. And, you know, and there's snow in the winter. And, you know, and parents, particularly of girls, don't want their children walking two, three, four hours to school and, and and they don't want them staying in the village overnight and so on. So in those places, in those remote villages, perhaps some of the most remote villages on this planet, you get low-cost private schools being created for the children who, who whose parents don't want them to go so far. We we found nearly 600 of these low-cost private schools in mountain villages in in Gansu province. Quite extraordinary. Again, uh, I mean, what an adventure going to these places, the most <laughs> remote places in the Himalayan foothills you can imagine, and finding a private school there serving poor kids. What percentage of the, the schools that you were discovering have access to technologies such as the internet and perhaps even you know a computer or even a single tablet device? And how do they implement this technology within their school program, if at all? Um, so so th this varies. This, this would be a difference. So in, in India, um, you'd find a lot of these low-cost private schools now have got some te technology, whether this is a, you know, a computer room or um, typically computers rather than tablets um, and you know some internet connections these are the schools one has found rather than what, I, what I've created where we've we've always put a computer room in right um, but uh, but in, in Africa you know that, that's much I mean schools might have a computer room but you, it's seldom connected it's seldom doing much um, and it's more it's more that someone's got the idea they they feel computers are important, but no one really knows how to use them um, and deal with them. You know, it's don't don't expect too much from this this side of things. I, I don't think much is happening in, in, in schools anywhere around the world. To be honest, you know, finding it hard to bring something interesting in with with technology. Now, in the Honduras case, so I can now focus on Central America. 
Yeah. So, so what, what what happened there is um, uh, uh, a, a a an entrepreneur who had created a chain of pharmacies across Central America and the Caribbean, a successful chain of pharmacies. Um, he read my book, The Beautiful Tree, and invited me over, and um, and and said, you know, are there low cost private schools here? We found some, not not as many as in other places the government schools are not as bad in central america you know there's not mm. there's not such a, a a huge demand but so there are a few low cost private schools um, but not not too many so are there the and then so then the idea was well, let's create a chain of affordable private schools here and let's try a blended learning model so th- there we are much more sort of technologically sophisticated if you like um Every every child has got at the moment a tablet. We're trying to upgrade that to a Chromebook, um, and every teacher has got a tablet. Hopefully, upgrading to a Chromebook or even a laptop in due course. We've got lesson plans being created, and they are all given to the to the um, teachers on their on their tablets. And we've got videos that children can watch on their tablets. Um, to, to understand a concept and then perhaps most important we've got lots of exercises on the tablets which you know the the, the software marks and helps children move to simpler or more difficult problems depending on their ability um, their, their, their getting of the topic and and the teacher can have a has a dash, dashboard and they see exactly how children are doing at any one point in time and who, who they can focus their attention on and perhaps bring in other children who've finished exercises quickly bring them to help the ones who are not doing so well so you know we've got a slightly more advanced model there it's very difficult to do um but at least the connectivity is possible there and um yes and and you know there are a few chains of schools that are doing interesting things with technology now and so this is a space one can watch it is much more difficult to do than than i i i i i realized it was going to be it's much more difficult than i thought but um you know, it, it's possible to do something interesting there. All the time bringing technology not for the sake of it, but because one realizes that in any classroom you've got such a range of abilities and you want personalized learning. You want children to be able to move at some, at least to some extent, at their own pace. You want children who are slower learners to be able to master the top, you know, particular concepts before they move on to other concepts. There's nothing worse than in classrooms, is there, where a child can't master one, you know, can't master one, um, one decimal point decimals, and immediately they have to go on there to two decimal points and three decimal. Well, what hope have they got? You know, and then they won't like maths at all. They'll always do badly. So we want children who don't master things to be able to master things, and likewise, we want children who can move ahead very quickly to be able to f- be free to move ahead quickly or go in depth into their subject um, or help others so they don't get bored, you know. So there's a reason for using technology because it it seems to be a good way of solving that problem of, uh, of um, how to create individualized learning. So what you're describing in Honduras, that is, is that the Cadmus Academies? Exactly, yeah. Did I send you the link? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So now the have you had an opportunity? Have have the academies been uh, present long enough for you be, to be able to measure its performance no. compared to? No. 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 Cadmus Academies in in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, is is my newest project. I'm as I said, I'm I'm, I'm working with these 
the, the, this chain of pharmacies, um, the, the, the entrepreneurs around that. So it's very new. We've really, I mean, we, we had an experimental thing going on for a year, but we've really opened the first school in February. The school year starts in February. We've got 360 odd children. We're very happy with that. Um, and uh, we, we'll be opening other schools in, in, in uh, next year and then moving into other countries across Central America in hopefully two years' time. So it's, it's a very new venture. We are collecting baseline data now using some uh, – we're, we're using tests. Singapore Maths we're using for maths and using some, uh, I think, some Pearson tests for, for, for language. Um, so we will have data in due course. Um, absolutely. Do we want data? Yes, we want to compare ourselves with other others. Um, we'll be using, I think, yeah, it was the Pearson SAT 10 test, I think, to be focusing on comparing ourselves with schools in America and elsewhere, seeing how well we're doing and always seeking to raise our standards. Very good. Well, we hotly anticipate successes in that venture as well. And speaking of potential ventures that you've recently announced and has received some publicity is the possibility of the opening of low-cost schools in Durham, England, which would be the first that you've worked on in a first world country. Am I correct? That's right. Yes. So so, so what happened here is quite interesting. I mean, I, I've, I've given lots of talks. I've written books. I've yes. had to do talks, po- podcasts like this and so on. And often people you know, it's, it's typically an interviewer like you might be the last question. Would this work in America? Would this work in England? And I've always said, I don't know. Um, I don't know at all because there are differences. And like I've said about Honduras, you know, if the public system isn't as bad as it is in Lagos or, or New Delhi, then already demand will be lower. Um, maybe, you know, in England, people, People are much more used to the sort of welfare state and the idea that everything is free. Um, so my, my answer has been, I honestly don't know. I remember giving one talk in a, in a conference in Manhattan um, a couple of years back, and uh, I got a taxi drive. For, uh, I was in a hurry. So I, oh, no, not, I was not in a hurry, probably. Uh, anyway, I got a taxi to JFK, and um, my taxi driver was – he was American, but, but – first generation, second generation from Haiti, I think. Mm. And I told him about the work I was doing around the world. And he said, ah, um, oh, you must do this in America. You must do this in America. I've even got a name of the chain for you. Um, and uh, he said, uh, people like him would definitely want low-cost private schools. They can't afford private schools now. They mm. want low-cost schools. Anyway, I, I did some research. Newcastle is in the northeast of England. And Newcastle, where I'm professor at university, is is a relatively, I mean, it's one of the more deprived areas. It's, it's, it's probably like, you know, the Detroit or similar of, of England because it was a very, it was, it's a post-industrial place. You know, it was where a lot of shipbuilding was there, coal mining, coal mining and shipbuilding were the big industries. They've gone, they've gone completely. And so, you know, there's been a, quite a lot of deprivation there. And I, I did a survey in, in some of the poorer communities there and found to my surprise that 80% of Parents we interviewed. This is this is not a random sample. This is an opportunistic sample on street corners, markets, places, and so on. But eighty percent of the parents said they would like private school. They would prefer private school. And I think about twenty percent of them said they could afford fifty pounds a week, roughly. I developed a financial model, and I reckoned I could 
create a chain of low-cost private schools for about, it's £52 a week. Um, I don't know what that's in your exchange rate. It's now probably about $60, $65 a week, isn't it? And um, I, I've got a partner there. We're working on it. We're getting approval from government. And this, <laughs> my business partner just happened to mention it to, I think it was the Durham Advertiser, um, the local magazine that's given out free <laughs> local um, newspaper. And somehow, great excitement in the British media. Uh, it was reported in several of the main British newspapers. So clearly, there's a lot of interest in this idea of low-cost private schools in England too. Um, and... Uh, I'm hopefully going to open the school in September. Let's see what happens. We've we've had we've, we've had about a week or two since the publicity. There was that little bit of publicity, and we got about nearly fifty expressions of interest so far. That's terrific. I hadn't expected so many, um, <laughs> but a variety of people. Um, some people from Nigeria and uh, Egypt and others who are there in the northeast of England and want what they think is going to be a better education. Um, but let's see. It's a, this is definitely a gamble. You know, opening schools in India or Ghana or Liberia, no longer a gamble to me because I know the market. I know that people are um, wanting that. In England, it's a bit of a gamble. But I'm pretty – yeah, I'm excited to see what happens. Watch this space. Watch this space. <laughs> we will be watching. And now <laughs> – I, you know, I was reading a little bit about the model, and the average cost is about ten thousand pounds for a year, uh, a year at a private university or a private uh, institute school. school yeah. Yes, and you are managing to cut this down. Uh, well, essentially a fourth of the cost of that, about twenty seven hundred pounds. How are you able to do this? Yeah, this. I mean, uh, you know, d d don't don't. Uh be disappointed if I won't give you too many details, but um, the thing is, the thing is, if you if you go to a school that's charging ten thousand pounds a year, you'll get a lot of uh, I don't know if the, if the word is there in American English, but you get a lot of frills. We call them frills, you know, a lot of um, a lot of additional things that you don't really need. So you're going to get Olympic sized swimming pools. You're going to get beautiful grounds. You're going to get rugby and football pitches. Um, yeah, AstroTurf, and you're going to get beautiful old buildings and all these things, beautiful old buildings are expensive to maintain, all these things are expensive and they add to the cost. So my principle is, okay, that's a bit like your £10,000 education, it's a bit like going to a five-star hotel. And my point is, you don't have to stay in a five-star hotel to appreciate the joys of a city. You know, I'm, I'm visiting even Detroit, but, you know, New York or Paris or London. I don't have to stay in a five-star hotel to appreciate the joys of the delights of London, Paris or wherever. Um, and similarly, what I'm saying is you don't have to stay in a five-star school or go to a five-star school to appreciate the delights of education, to appreciate the joys of learning. You can stay in a much cheaper place and still appreciate those delights and, and joys. That's that's really the principle. So I'm cutting out all the all the frills, all the fripperies, all the, that's unnecessary. It's going to be very simple, no frills education, but focused with teachers who love kids, who love learning, focused with a curriculum that's you know emphasizes 
strong academics, strong basics in, in English and mathematics and fun projects as well, but all done at low cost. And, you know, just the, you know, that, that's how we can bring the price down. Obviously, the margin for each student is going to be tiny. This will be a low margin, high volume business. Um, the only way we can get investors interested, if it's not one school in, in Durham and the north of East England, it has to be 10, 20 schools to get anyone interested. But that's, um, that's what I hope to do. What do you think is going to be the biggest hurdle in assessing the success if and when this project happens? I mean, you're already receiving quite a bit of criticism even before it's opened up. Just be basically on the concept of it because people want to protect their vested interests of their, their programs, of course. And there are some, I think, fair criticisms that you may not necessarily hear that would apply to a third world that wouldn't apply to a first world country. So what kinds of things are you hoping to be able to show uh, in order to gauge its success in a first world. Yeah. So, so, so first of all, let's just be very, very clear. I haven't got Department for Education approval yet. The right, process right. going forward, and that's that's obviously the first hurdle. I'm 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 hopeful that we will meet all their requirements. But um, you know, before we and 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 getting approval will be the uh, the first step and uh, the first success. You know, so if we can get approval for this. Um, then we've we've crossed the first milestone. Um, secondly, I'm I'm a I'm a great believer in in um, parental choice, and if we get enough parents who choose this and maintain that choice, you know, uh, through not just one year but two or three years, that to me is a metric of success. And I should have mentioned that earlier when we talked about metrics. You know, a huge metric of success for me is p parents choosing your school and continuing to choose it. I mean, t day by day in Africa, we have an all-inclusive daily fee in the chain of schools in Africa I've created, and whether it's weekly or monthly um, in, in the case of other schools. So that, so that will be a metric of success. Yeah, if I can get my school full and people continue to want to come there, that's a metric of success. Obviously, we will do um, uh, testing uh, in, in the key subjects mathematics and English and, and compare ourselves with, with nationwide norms. And I'm hopeful we will show significant, um, uh, improvement over, uh, over our peer group. But, uh, you mentioned criticisms. I, I've, I suddenly realized when you said that, that I've actually got, I've developed this luxury position now. I don't know whether, um, it's a good one or not. You can advise me, but I've, I've not, I've decided not to read the criticisms. And so, uh, you know, there were a couple of articles on the web I know, and, um, I decided not to read the criticisms this time. I just want to do it. It will be different from, it will be different from Africa and India. Of course it will. This is a different environment, but I want to do it and see if it works. And I'm not going to be deflected by whatever criticisms there are. Do you think that's sensible? Well, I'm, I am one to move forward with something that I believe is, is correct. And then once I reach a certain pinnacle, a certain plateau in which I, I set goals for myself. And once I receive that, then I'm willing to look at both myself and what my metrics were for success. And then I would be willing to accept the, 
the other individuals' feedback and criticisms because before then, it's always speculation. And speculation, especially when it's ideologically driven, can be very dangerous, in fact, maybe even poisonous. So I would say I don't disagree with the mythology that you're that you're proposing. And, and I think that you need a certain amount of bravery in order to do what you're doing. And bravery may be diminished in the face of <laughs> some of the critics here, even though I think that many of the sorts of things you've heard many times before and you could easily dispel them even within your own mind. So I don't see it as an issue. Yeah, but I, I think you know, use that word poisonous. A lot of the criticisms are poisonous when they're ideologically driven. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been swamped with criticism for the work in Africa, Asia, um, and, you know, have, have fought back. And as I say, for this project in England that we, we're discussing, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the criticisms, I, a lot of the criticisms are you just can't possibly do it. You know, you can't possibly do it for so little money. <laughs> right. <money. laughs> you know, they may be right. <laughs> I think I can, but, you know, who knows? They may be right. Let's, but I'm just going to do it anyway. And uh, if I come back in a year's time with my tail between my legs, as another English expression, um, well, that, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy with to have tried it and failed rather than not to have tried it. Hmm. Well, with that, I, I can't imagine a, a very a much better or more hopeful conclusion than that. I do wish you, Professor, all the best, and, and truly it has been an honor to be able to speak to you about your past experiences, your is your, your work and your research, and your current and future endeavors. I have been a big fan of you from across the pond, and I will continue to do so. Uh, right now I'm gushing, and that maybe is a little shameless, but I it's my program, so I can do whatever I want, and my <laughs> listeners will uh, will forgive me. And they and you know what? There's enough information out there, enough from your detractors that they can go and they can balance their opinion with counterfactuals and 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 counteravails. So, you know, if they wish to do so, which I encourage them to do, and then come back to me and we can talk about them. And maybe I'll pass those those along to you. But in the meantime, uh, we will all be hotly anticipating this, I'm sure. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. You're 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 a great uh, guy to spend an hour with. So thank you for inviting me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Professor. All right. Remember, everybody, this is Flagship Freedom, the podcast that places you on the front line in the war of idea. Join us for our next battle. So long. Darling, I have only one desire, and that one desire is you, and I know nobody else ain't gonna do. Darling, I have only one desire, and that one desire is you, and I know nobody else ain't gonna do.